Hello, and welcome to Rise of the Data Cloud. Today's episode features an interview with John Demolis, Vice President and CTO of Pacific Life. John has had a decades-long career leading the industry in digital transformation. From GE to Walmart and now Pacific Life, he has been an expert in a variety of industries and is sharing his expertise with us today. In this episode, John talks about how you can have a successful digital transformation, the benefits of third-party data, data-driven decision-making, and much more. So please enjoy this interview between John Demolis and your host, Steve Hamm. John, it's great to have you on the show today. Great. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Now, Pacific Life is more than 150 years old, yet I'm guessing that many of the podcast listeners don't know much about the company. Can you please begin by describing the businesses the company is in and a little bit about its corporate culture? Yeah, sure thing. So Pacific Life has a number of lines of business. There's life insurance, which includes products that are really focused on financial protection, supplemental retirement income through life insurance. What you typically think of around life insurance term, universal, can include benefits like long-term care. It's also a very robust retirement solutions division, which has products really focused on long-term financial independence, which includes both asset growth and guaranteed lifetime income. We're living longer these days, so products like this really help protect us against outliving our savings. We have an institutional division. These products are really more focused on large institutional customers, things like retirement plans, corporations, as well as other financial institutions and institutional investors. We also have a reinsurance business, PLRE. It's a global reinsurance business specializing in products really that help other insurance or reinsurance companies manage their financial risk. And then finally, we have Pacific Global Asset Management. It's really our investment group manages over $18 billion in assets under management. Uh, It's really part of a diverse portfolio, including things like private equity, income, fixed income, other financial vehicles. And the, the corporate culture is, is incredibly unique, which is one of the reasons why I joined Pacific Life. Even though it is a, a very large company financially, it is part of the Fortune 500, there's only about 4,000 employees. So it has a really tight-knit community family feel to it, which is phenomenal, especially for a financial institution of its size. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned this before, the 4,000 people. It's basically because of there's not a lot of human processing of, you know, paperwork and stuff like that. It just the digital revolution has basically taken over, correct? Yeah, I think between the digitization and automation of the industry and the fact that our business model, we don't have captive agents, so you, you won't find a Pacific Life financial professional out there. We distribute our products through independent financial advisors, financial professionals, which also is part of that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I want to get into your role at the company. Now, you're fairly new to the job, I I believe just nine months. What are some of your priorities? Yeah, great question. So even though I am the the chief technology officer, there's a few different facets to my role. So the first being some of the typical CTO responsibilities you would expect, our enterprise architecture practice, maintaining a pipeline and radar of emerging technology investment, direction on enterprise-wide technology strategy for things like integration, standards and guidelines on capabilities like How do we manage our cloud native data platforms and processes like how we introduce technology into the environment? So that's kind of one set of responsibilities. 
The second one being our enterprise data program. So the kind of the totality of our enterprise data program falls within my organization. It includes both the technical capabilities and platforms, but also things like developing our data governance operating model and coordinating across the teams that are executing these initiatives within the divisions, but also across corporate functions. And then the last one really being around digital transformation. So Pacific Life is underway on our incredible digital transformation journey. As you can imagine, this touches all aspects of the company. And my office really serves as the connective tissue to coordinate across these work streams, as well as continuing to drive our digital maturity across the various value chain components of the business. So it's a really interesting role. A little bit of traditional CTO stuff. Obviously, there's some overlap with our data program, but also a bit wider berth of responsibility specific to data. And then um, kind of being that, I guess, a connective tissue for our digital transformation initiative is it keeps things exciting. Yeah. Can we drill down on that a little bit? The, the digital transformation. I mean, that's a buzzword, obviously, but yeah. It's, it's also a transformation, something real and stressful that's happening to companies. What's the beginning point and what's the end point and how are you getting there? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question to tease out some of the things that you talked about. I mean, the beginning point really kicked off a few years ago when as, a, as an enterprise, as a company, really started focusing a lot of investment specific to our digital capabilities. You know, we, ha- we had been maturing those prior to that, but it was really process focused. And now not just us, but our entire industry, including both the life and annuity industry, but also financial services as a broader sector is really investing at a much higher pace because automation, digitization, these are things that are really going to take companies to the next level. So there's, there's that as a starting point. Honestly, I don't, I don't really know if there is an end point. It's not a, when are you done? It's how do you continue on the journey and how do you continue to to maintain visibility on what capabilities are out there. So I don't really, I don't really think there's necessarily an endpoint. We may switch focus to different parts of the organization, but in my opinion, digital transformation is, is not a destination. It's more about a, a continual journey. Yeah, well, I think of financial companies and specifically investment companies. I think of massive piles of paper. I think of huge reports. <laughs> I think of publishing and mailing out to people these these massive reports. And, and that's a lot of trees. Specifically, what are you doing about that? Yeah, I think it, it certainly is an interesting dynamic because it's easy to say, well, let's just digitize every single process. Let's just have an app for everything. Let's have one app for everything. But one thing that we need to keep in mind is we want to provide contemporary means and mechanisms to interact with us, but we also need to meet our customers where they are. So let's say, for example, there's particular customers that that prefer a paper-based application. It's not really about forcing them to interact with us in a different way, but how can we accommodate those desires and those needs yet still internally taking advantage of the opportunities that digitization, automation, specifically things like optical character recognition can play to help advance us on the journey. Yeah. yeah. Now, a lot of people are talking these days about making their companies data-driven, and I know that that's your mantra as well. What does that mean for Pacific Life? 
Yeah, that's a, that's another great question, Steve. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of companies and enterprises, when they say data driven, they'll immediately gravitate toward technologies and platforms. So let's implement a data platform or implement a set of technologies, and that's certainly part of it. But for us, that is only one piece of the puzzle. So it certainly includes building out our ecosystem of data management technologies, whether it's our hosting platform, data quality management and monitoring, catalog, access controls, governance, those types of things. But it also includes things like how can we reimagine and reinvent our business processes if you rewind a couple decades, there's a big push to digitize processes. So people had been doing things a certain way for so long, and then technology and platforms and websites and things came out. So now you have to re-engineer your process, taking into account those new dynamics. And now what we're seeing is based on the new sources of data, the ways to consume data, we're having another, another kind of uh, digital revolution, as it were, where now even digital processes need to reinvent themselves to take advantage of new sources of data and new ways to consume it. So that's kind of the second leg in the stool. So the first being the technologies, the second being process re-engineering through this lens of being data-centric or data-driven. Mm-hmm. And the third one really being around talent and data literacy. So how do we get people comfortable using and consuming data? How do we implement things like common catalogs so that we're all, you know, speaking the same vocabulary that we can publish inventories of of the data that is available to our employees so that it's it's much easier to discover and access the data that we have. So those are really the three legs of the stool and and it all comes together around decision making. So that's kind of how we sum it up is data-driven decision-making where the rubber hits the road. So when you're making a decision, questioning what data people are using to make that decision, understanding the data you have available to make your decisions is really how we see those three, those three dynamics coming together. It's really interesting. There's a, a bit of democratization of data here. It's almost as if everybody in the company is, has to see themselves as a data consumer and also a, a data-based decision maker. I mean, it seems like this is something that's really spreading throughout the your your employees, your your very few employees. That that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And and what you just described, having every employee, every associate understanding what their role is relative to either the creation, the management, or the consumption of data is kind of another way to summarize the journey that we're on. I think that's a great, great image. Yeah, yeah. Now, the company has this grand initiative, Horizon 2025. How does data-driven decision-making fit into that? Yeah, no, it it is a great question. So Horizon 2025 is a broad organizational transformation that that we are on. And we have uh, this concept of the five Ds, which is our our guiding principles for the entire initiative. And the second one is actually data-driven decision-making. So it's right there explicitly stated as one of the guiding principles of our organizational transformation. So you can't can't get any can't get any higher than that. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's so funny. In the world we live in now, it seems like obvious. Obviously, we should make data-driven decisions. <laughs> Just like in, in, in medical science, they say evidence-based decision-making in medical science. Were they not using evidence previously? So I, I think that the expectations for for using data and sophisticated use of data are really, really soaring these days. 
And like you said, you talk about talent, nobody can kind of sit it out. Nobody can sit on the sidelines. That's right. It's not just for uh, not just for technologists. It's, it's literally every employee in the company should know their their role in the in the data lifecycle. Yeah, yeah. Now I noticed that you spent a dozen years at GE in a variety of roles, and then three years at Walmart. Now both companies are known for their strong focus on leadership and leadership development. What are the most important lessons you learned at GE and Walmart that you're applying to your job at Pacific Life? Yeah, no, that's that's a, a, a great question. I would say my time at General Electric, one of my biggest biggest takeaways is adaptability. Just an interesting personal anecdote in those in those twelve years, I think I lived in eleven cities and six countries and three continents, uh, and I worked in a. a number of industries, everything from NBC and Universal Pictures when they were part of the the GE structure, nuclear energy, traditional energy, heavy-duty freight locomotives, jet engines, private label credit cards. So all with a similar theme around technology and data and analytics, but just being able to experience those wide varieties of contexts, both culturally as well as from a, a business and an economic lens, you got to learn how to learn how to ramp up quickly, learn how to prioritize, and also kind of draw common themes between those various experiences. So that's probably one of my biggest lessons learned from GE and incredibly thankful for my time there. Walmart was another amazing experience. And the biggest things I learned about Walmart was one, operating at scale, the Fortune one company, you can't really get get bigger scale than that, but also an incredibly intense customer centricity. It was very, very apparent how what you did every day was ultimately in service to their retail customers. And I think especially here in Pacific Life, it's just as important that focus on the end customer, both our financial professionals, as well as our policy and contract holders particularly because Pacific Life is structured as a mutual company. We don't have external stockholders. We're a, we're a mutual company, which in essence means our policyholders are not only our customers, but several stakeholders in many respects. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. And so the, the, the interest of the customers and the interest of the, of the, <laughs> the quote shareholders are the same because mm-hmm. they are the same. Now, I think that's a really nice alignment in capitalism. Hey, you mentioned locomotives. Does that mean you you were you lived and worked in Erie, PA at one point? So interestingly enough, I was there when the headquarters was based in Chicago, but I had several team members that that were based in Erie, and I spent many, many fond days and, and weekends in Erie. All right. Interest yeah, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania, so I'm familiar with all the crazy industrial cities along the line there. Interesting. Let's talk about financial services, the industry. And when we think of the financial services industry, not just banks, but also the other elements of the industry, we kind of think there's the tendency to kind of think of old and stodgy, or there was for a while. Now, Pacific Life invested for a long time in standard technologies, mainframe computers, traditional relational databases. They did the work fine, but then the world changed. So could you kind of explain how the the companies migrated from the old standards into the new world of technology and also specifically how it got into the cloud? 
Yeah, it's, it, it's actually a question we, we talk about a lot, not, not just in Pacific Life, but to your point, you know, f- with financial services, especially longstanding enterprises, you know, our, our policies and contracts are, are tens, if not 30, 40, 50 years long, if you think about life insurance policies. And so the, the technology required to service those long-term contracts is, is going to be changing. And really the theme for us is all about intentionality. And not just necessarily following a fad because everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's moving from mainframe to data centers. Let's do that. Everybody's moving from data centers to cloud. Let's do that. It's really taking a very intentional view of the computational workloads that are required to execute our business and, you know, taking advantage of the right technology for the right use case. So, for example, those applications where they can take advantage of the things that cloud brings us like elasticity. So if we have a lot of activity, you can ramp up the resources you need, but when you don't have a lot of activity, you can ramp them back down. There are certain types of workloads and applications that can take advantage of that. And there's some that aren't. And if they can take advantage of it, those are things that we prioritize moving to cloud. So from a a general cloud strategy standpoint, that's been our approach. And then specific to, uh, to data, I think one of the one of the catalysts that really led us to evaluating and eventually migrating to cloud-based data platforms is we're moving beyond just storage. So databases are no longer a technical capability where you just park data and query it every once in a while. We're moving into much more analytical consumption use cases that require not just storage but more sophisticated compute capability that can handle not only the increased volume of data, but the complexity of these types of use cases. And and that ability to right size, not only the storage, but this compute that's on top of it, that can be a bottleneck or can't be a bottleneck if you uh, use the right technologies. Those are some of the advantages that we see, again, specific to cloud-based data platforms. And one of the, the, the reasons why we're excited to take advantage of platforms like Snowflake to help advance those analytical use cases. Yeah, yeah. Hey, let's talk about Snowflake now. When did the company start having a relationship with Snowflake and what were kind of the initial reasons for engaging? Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, so our our Snowflake journey actually started a couple of years ago in our retirement solutions business with their data science and advanced analytics teams. And and they were grappling with a particular set of challenges, including they'd spend a ton of time wrangling data that was siloed across a few parts of the organization. They were wrestling with some performance issues relative to some of the queries and models they were working with. I know, for example, one extremely complex query they were they were wrestling with went from, I think it was it was like an hour or hour and a half in execution time to a matter of seconds once they re-engineered it on Snowflake. So that was really us dipping our toe in the water specific to the platform and the partnership. And then from there, our life insurance business caught wind of the impact that the capability was making, started deploying some of their use cases on it as well. And then really it it caught on like wildfire. And we said, hey, this isn't just specific to one of our divisions. There really is an enterprise opportunity for a more robust implementation of the platform. Yeah. So are all of your divisions using it now, or is it just still kind of migrating from one to the next? 
I would say the primary use is in is right now in our retail division. So life insurance and retirement solutions. As I, I alluded to, we're we're on a journey actually as we speak to to implement more of an enterprise shared service related to management of the platform. And on the heels of that, we certainly have a number of use cases in the backlog that we're teeing up to migrate once that shared service gets up and running. Okay. I think I want to drill down now a little bit. What are a couple of the most important applications for Snowflake that your divisions are using? And what kind of benefits has the company gotten from that? Yeah, I would say you know, two things I'd, I'd certainly call out. One being our ability to collaborate on enterprise data sets. So removing the technical friction between sharing and, and accessing with appropriate controls, which are also built into the platform natively, which is great. So that, that ability to break down silos, particularly for our data science and analytics teams, but also for, say, our supporting functions, being able to to build reports and visualizations without having to know who to go to to get certain data sets at being curated and managed in in a single repository has been a great benefit. And then introspectively, being able to orchestrate that collaboration, but only only writing the data once. So the Snowflake platform, is, as you well know, you land the data once and then you can create a myriad of logical views. So I don't have to worry about all these dependent chains of jobs that transform data and which one might've run last night or failed or who's looking at what, what time period of data set. All of that is, is taken care of by the platform, which has been great. So we give our users the capability they need without a lot of that administrative overhead that you would have in a, in a traditional data warehouse platform. The second thing I would call out is really the central management of third-party data. So as you can imagine, and this isn't specific to Pacific Life, but we source a number of third-party data sets, whether it's things like Experian data or discover.org that we use through a number of use cases. So having the ability to source and manage that centrally and publish it across the enterprise is another a huge benefit that we're seeing from the implementation. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So basically the third-party data, is that something that's relatively new? Or is that something you've always had, but just it was kind of clunky to gather it and, and make it available in the, in the past? Yeah, so it's actually, it's, it's a bit of a ladder. So we've always subscribed and sourced certain third-party data sets, whether it's relating to economic data or, or things of that nature. And now having the ability and having a mechanism to do that centrally and do it again, cutting down on the administrative overhead. So you don't have to worry about, well, what, what team actually is sourcing that data? Who do I know that I can get a copy of? How do I get a copy? How do I make sure I have the latest data set? All of those things now through the platform and particularly the data marketplace that we've started leveraging for things like Experian, see that just Again, we're able to deliver the capability to our business users, but the administration and the sausage making required to make that happen is dramatically lower. So you don't have to set up separate distribution channels for each supplier. You just go straight to the marketplace and kind of, is it like you publish it and your people know what they can get, that kind of thing? That's exactly right. Yep. So subscribe to it through the marketplace or where if they aren't marketplace participants using more traditional mechanisms to source the data, but still having a single platform to publish it, make it discoverable by the enterprise has been phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, data science is becoming kind of the lifeblood for many companies. 
But a lot of companies are struggling between the need for governance, but also the need to allow their data scientist community to really have almost free reign to different kinds of data because they're mashing up different data sources. They're, they're really doing very creative things. So how do you manage this balance, this challenge at, at Pacific Light? Yeah, no, that's, um, it's certainly a dynamic that has been picking up because if you think about a data science team, I mean, they're, they're only as good as the data that you feed them. So you can have the most incredible, smartest data science scientists and modelers in your in your group or team but if you don't give them the data it's like having the the best most exotic seed that you're trying to plant but if you never water it or you don't give the soil proper nutrition then you're not going to ever have a have a plant or harvest so certainly that that need to to democratize data and reduce the friction of discovering and accessing data is paramount But when we think about governance, we think about it in two veins. One is governance of the data itself. So giving transparency to our data scientists on what is that data set? Where did it come from? When was it last refreshed? Do we have any information relative to the quality of that data so that they can make an informed decision whether or not that data set is fit for purpose for whatever model they're building? So that's governance on the data side. And then governance on the analytics side, not just proliferating a whole constellation of science experiments, but really having controlled experimentation on, all right, how do we go broad, but then at a certain point of the experiment, be very intentional about whether we pivot or persevere. Is this an experiment that we want to continue investing in, or has that well run dry? I I use the analogy of, you know, you, you drill a bunch of test wells before you maybe decide where you're going to, where you're going to drill for oil. But at some point you have to, you have to cut it off and say, well, is this, uh, is this test well going to, going to bear fruit or should we put it on the shelf? So really governance for us comes down to governing the data and transparency into what data sets are available and the, the quality and pedigree of that data. And then governance just around, like I say, this concept of controlled experimentation. Yeah. Now, data scientists are kind of a special breed. I mean, they're they're kind of the the wizards of, of, of the data business. And they like to use a lot of different languages, purpose-built for different kinds of queries or different kinds of, of analytics they're doing. Now, SQL, very popular, very well understood, very powerful, but there are a bunch of other languages that, that people want to use. And I wanted to, without getting too far down into the technical weeds here, how are you dealing with that, with the desire to, to be able to use all those those different tools on the same data or on the yeah. same, well, the same data warehouse, I guess you'd say. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a great question. I'd say there's a, there's a couple things that we're doing to try and manage that. One is looking to partner with platforms that allow a certain amount of flexibility in the language that is used for modeling. So I know with Snowflake, we're excited about some of the Snowpark functionality that will allow for Python execution within the environment. So things like that again, to allow flexibility, at least in the early development and experimentation stages of analytics, analytical modeling, mm-hmm. but then also, again, being very intentional. So yes, a, a data scientist might have their have their language of choice, which is perfectly apt and fine for prototyping, for, like I say, the test wells. But then when it comes time to 
maybe formalize or harden a particular model for a production use case, right. you know, then we will take a little bit more, I would say, intentional look at the, the languages and the, and the design and architecture behind that model and potentially align it to closer to one of our enterprise standards, just so it's more consistent relative to what's running in production, but allow for a bit more flexibility again during the earlier experimentation and test well phase. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I understand you're implementing a shared services framework at Pacific Life, and this allows the central IT team to own Snowflake but still allow some autonomy and flexibility for your for your different divisions, retirement, uh, life insurance, that kind of thing. Why did you decide to implement that framework versus allowing the businesses to basically run their own shows, run their own environments? Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things that we found, especially once the, the use and adoption of Snowflake graduated from a single division to across multiple divisions is, one, there were just a lot of administrative tasks, things like object provisioning, user provisioning, monitoring the environment, monitoring jobs, things like that, that in the absence of a, of a centralized shared service would be done similar in several different places, but it wasn't really a differentiated capability or a differentiated task specific to the business unit. So the opportunity to, to take a lot of that administrative work off the shoulders of the divisional resources was appealing in a number of different ways. One, the divisional technology teams weren't burdened with that administrative work, but then also we could put some consistency around how those tasks were being done. So that was kind of one compelling reason why we went down this path. The other one being just the increased need for collaboration on data sets between divisions and between, say, corporate supporting functions and divisional functions. Third-party data being a great example. So a lot of the third-party data that we source is consumed by multiple divisions. So again, having a centralized shared service and a centralized infrastructure allows for a lot more seamless sharing of things like that, but also even other data sets that are that are generated and managed by the divisions themselves. So those were probably two of the most compelling reasons. Again, one, just optimizing our execution of administrative work, but then also facilitating and, and reducing friction to collaborate on data sets between divisions is, is kind of the other big compelling reason. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine that in the, in the pre-data cloud era, it would be very difficult for divisions to share data, to, to, for, to have it generated in one place and, and, and used and accessed in another place. Is that something that really is absolutely enabled by by the data cloud or is that something that was done could be done kind of manually and uh, ponderously before that yeah i think it it, it it was possible before but to your point just it required a lot more effort and there was a lot more friction in doing so and just like just like water you know people find the path of least resistance so when when there was a lot of resistance and a lot of friction or it was easier to stay siloed versus uh, coming together i mean that's just human nature would would execute in that manner but now that things like cloud data platforms reduce a lot of that friction we're starting to see that tide turn a little bit where people are realizing both technical and functional look it's actually it's actually easier to, right. to collaborate. It's actually easier to leverage some of these centralized platforms versus staying siloed. 
Yeah, it's really interesting to think about because you talked about how stable so much of, of the company's business is and how these long contracts. But so you'd think the technology is kind of the, the same kind of thing. It would be it would, it would be a, something in parallel. But it seems like you've got a very stable, long-term business, but, but your technology, the technology needs are, are changing rapidly and you are changing them rapidly. I mean, it's like, you're 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 running like in a horse race or something like that so it's interesting how do you how do you kind of manage is are there frictions between the stability of the of the core business and the need to to rapidly innovate on the technology side yeah i mean that 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 is certainly something that is that is always top of mind not only are Understanding and, and managing our risk profile relative to technical change, but also to your point, as we as we change technologies, as we change business processes, how do we maintain the continuity of our existing book of business? While particularly because even though we have a very stable, long running segments of the business, we are we're writing new business every day and bringing the, the great financial products of Pacific Life to new customers and, and policyholders every day. So how can we leverage technology, particularly for accelerating our writing of new business, but also realizing operational efficiency in our existing book of business is certainly a focus of ours. But, but to your point, you have to balance that with what's the risk profile, what are the requirements of servicing our existing in-force book of business, while also being able to take advantage of these new digital capabilities, particularly as it relates to new business generation. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, new business, new business for, for life insurance is always going to be with younger people, with new people somehow. And I live in a town full of of young people, Yale is here, other universities, stuff like that. These young kids today, they're different. You know, they don't drive cars, they don't have TVs, all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure that there's something parallel going on in how they view their financial future or their security or their risk profiles and things like that. So there's a lot of learning for you guys to do kind of on the fly, right? Yeah, I would say, you know, especially given our intense, intense customer centricity and our focus on, on customer experience, staying, staying in line with and understanding the changing dynamics and not, it goes back to one of the themes I talked about earlier of meeting our customers where they are. So how can we provide experiences and capabilities that do cater to some of these newer demographics or, or evolving or changing demographics while still enabling our, our existing customer base to maintain a, a very close relationship with us and, and preserve their experience as well. Because, you know, even though let's say, say for example, Newer demographics, younger folks, they prefer texting versus calling. I actually got this question earlier this morning. I actually prefer calling versus texting just because, and maybe it's because I've been stuck in my house for the last year and change, but even newer generations, they aren't homogenous demographics. There's variation. So how do we leverage digital capabilities to meet our customers where they are, either across demographics or within demographics is, is a big opportunity and a big focus for us. No, that's interesting. Hey, I want to talk about the future a little bit now. Uh, first, the near future. What do you expect will be the major trends in data management and data analytics over the next year or so? 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I would say, you know, starting on the analytics side, really embedding analytics directly within business processes so that you can keep users in their workflow. I think historically or over the past few years, a lot of the focus on analytics is, all right, I've got a big data set. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that data set to generate some sort of statistical model or maybe a forecasting or a predictive model. We'll put that output somewhere on a report that someone can go access and say, what's our forecasted or, or predicted outcome? How can I use that data to make decisions? But that report or that output was maybe separated from their day-to-day workflow. And if you, if you think about things like on the consumer side, product recommendation engines. So if you go to amazon.com, walmart.com, and you're, you're about to buy something and you say, well, these other products are recommended for you. It's right there in the same workflow. You're not going to a separate site and saying, well, what other product recommendations would, would someone have for me that I can now go and add to my cart? It's right there in the workflow. So that trend of embedding the, the impact or the results of analytics directly in, a, in an enterprise user's workflow, I see that being incredibly critical, particularly over the next year and, and several years. On the data side, I think really it is about that last mile of delivery of data sets to the consumer. So there's been a lot of advancement in the capabilities of managing data, particularly you know, on the back end around where, how do we host it? How do we transform it? How do we transfer or transmit it between sources and where these repositories are? How do we govern it? But really now it's about, well, how do we, how do we reduce that friction? If I'm a consumer, whether I'm a data scientist or another enterprise user, how do I, how do I discover what data is even available to me or is relevant to my role? And, and how and should I have access to those data sets? So really catalog, catalog and access I see on the data side being a, a near-term priority. Right, right, right. I see the future. What a fascinating modern age we live in. Is this what the future holds? Now I'm going to ask you to kind of put on your visionary cap for a minute. Looking out five years or more, what are the major changes you see coming in, in the data sphere? Uh, and how will they change the game for businesses and even for society? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So if I put my, my futurist hat on, a couple go. topics come to mind. So the first being ethics and the appropriate use of data. It's certainly a hot topic right now, and, and, and rightfully so. Where I see this evolving is really to the point where you'll start to see actual technical solutions playing a larger role into managing not just can I have access to a certain data set. There's certainly access controls built into all data platforms at this point. If I'm a, a certain user, what objects can I query and all that good stuff. But now the appropriate and ethical use of data speaks to the use case itself. So all right, we source this, this data set, either maybe contractually from a third party or from an individual. That data set was given to us with some expectations around how that data is, is used. So how can we tag data sets and how can we tag analytic use cases to help take the decision-making not out of the hands of the data scientists, but be a lot more consistent in how 
how those uses are applied, I think is, is one, one trend where again, the, just the natural evolution, the conversations are happening now, the need is, is white hot right now. And so I see technical capability coming very fast following and continuing into the future. The other trend I really see is individuals becoming much more explicitly aware of the value of their own personal data, just as enterprises have have started doing over the past few years, even in the companies I've been a part of and and a lot of the forums that I participate in, this, this notion of data as an asset has really been circulating, particularly in in the enterprise world for a while. And just like you think about your house being a personal asset or your car or the money you have in your bank account or your wallet or your investment portfolio being an asset, personally, this notion of an individual's data being just as much of an asset that they'll make explicit cost benefit decisions now when they when they go to exchange that data with someone and are getting something of value back so i don't know quite yet technically you know how that manifests itself but just people people have been talking about that for about 10 years but how does an individual monetize their data i mean you'd have to have a company that kind of sets up a system for doing it recognizing it because an individual can't just demand it you know that kind of thing that's exactly right. Yeah, monetize it, or at the very least, put put more of an explicit or quantifiable value around it, so mm-hmm. that you understand. All right, if I'm going to sign up for a service that is, you know, quote unquote free, but the 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 compensation or the exchange is part of my personal data, how can I have more of a quantifiable value uh, in order to? you know, make that cost benefit analysis of, well, is, is the data I'm giving up worth the service I'm getting, getting back versus it being a, a one for one exchange? Oh, that's interesting. So maybe, maybe in exchange for, you know, a degree of openness, you get premium services or offers or various or discounts. I mean, there, there are different things you could do. That's very interesting. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real up close and personal. John, we'd like to end the podcast on a personal note. Now, like many other people, you've been working from home for about 19 months, this whole COVID thing. Do you have any fun stories that have come out of that involving pets or kids or both pets and kids? So buddy, I, uh, I had to chuckle while you were saying that I, I do have one. And so, so for, for folks that know me, I have a, I have a five-year-old Belgian shepherd mix and we named her whiskey when we got her, which is an amazing name. I still say it's an amazing name. She's this great, like kind of caramel brown color. And it's just when people are like, Oh, what's your dog's name? It's like, Oh, her name's whiskey, which is, which is great. Everybody, everybody thinks it's amazing. And now I have a two and a half year old hmm. and one of the humorous byproducts of having a dog named whiskey is, you know, my daughter's first words were mommy, daddy, more, thank you, milk and whiskey. She can very <laughs> clearly articulate the word whiskey, which has led to some fun conversations. Plus, I mean, it, it's just, it's just funny having her, you know, stand on the balcony screaming whiskey and seeing the looks from people walking on the street. But yeah, that, that, that's kind of a funny story. And then if I'm on a video call and people don't know, I have a dog named whiskey and she's 
chewing on something off screen and I snap my fingers and yell whiskey, I have to make sure that they know <laughs> I'm not asking someone to bring me a drink at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, that's, that's really nice. You know, it's interesting. We have learned a lot about each other on these zoom calls. I mean, when you, you know, when you, you see somebody's true environment, you see the pictures on the walls, you see whether they have any kind of interior decorating taste or not, all this kind of stuff. It, it really does kind of deepen the relationships. And I think that's something that, that we, people didn't anticipate never had this kind of experience and suddenly, suddenly you're having it. And, and it, it is kind of strengthening in a sense. We, you know, goes back to almost back to the culture that you talked about at the top if you see your your colleagues more as as people as individuals not in just in their roles in the company i actually think that that yields you know better relationships and better working relationships and better results so oh yeah i couldn't cool. agree more steve yeah yeah hey this has been a great conversation you know just looking over the things we talked about we talked about so much but i always like to highlight something this whole thing with Horizon 2025, that the big initiative, the big corporate-wide initiative for the company, the fact that data-driven decision-making is one of the five key elements of it is really, I think, reflects the importance that data has these days in business. I mean, it's it's really been elevated. It's, it, it's recognized and it's absolutely essential to every company. And I just, it's really really striking to see how important what kind of important to your company puts on it so yeah. thanks for explaining that oh definitely all right thanks very much all right great talking to you steve and uh, appreciate the time the data cloud world tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at snowflakes data cloud at a venue near you Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour.